This is Corolla Digital. Hey, you guys, it's me, Allison. I just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you like what you're hearing, which, let's face it, you do, tell a friend. You can listen to us all sorts of places. A couple of them would be iTunes or AllisonRosen.com. Hi, this is Adam Carolla. I want to thank you for supporting this podcast on the Corolla Digital Network. Everyone here at Corolla Digital is very proud of the shows that we put out every week and are excited about the future of our network. However, a patent troll is threatening that future by suing us. We need to fight back and beat the troll down. If we go down, all the other shows on the other networks you've grown to love are going to go down next. Visit fundanything.com forward slash patent troll to donate and find out other ways that you can help beat the patent trolls. Thank you and mahalo. Allison Rosen, Allison Rosen is your new best friend. Allison, Allison, with perfect good times never end. Allison Rosen, doing the wavy pencil dance again. Allison Rosen, Allison's your new best friend. Hey everyone, hi, hello, it is me, Allison Rosen, and I'm sitting here with Jack Burdett, producer, writer, Occasional actor, right? Occasional, yeah. Occasional, but but known yeah. more for producing and writing. And your list of credits is um, pretty overwhelming. Right now, you're the executive producer of the Mindy Project. Yes. But people know you from 30 Rock. And I mean, like, well, we'll get into, into your history in television. And you grew up in a family of TV writers as well, right? I did, yeah. Um, yes. Okay. So let's see. Where sh- you know what? Let's just jump in here. With your Just Me or Everyone. Now, of course, we're going to do Just Me or Everyone later on in the show. But I know that you have one that you think might be just you. And I don't think it's just you. So let's hear it. Oh, God. I, I think I forgot it. Oh, I remember what it was. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, I did. Because I do have another one. Because oh. I, I, I was just flying yesterday. And I fly a lot. And here's one thing that is it Just Me or When you hit heavy turbulence and uh, – I mean like real heavy – and people start screaming. Adults scream. I get it on the very first one. I don't get when they continue to scream after everyone. It drives me insane. It's like there's kids on this flight. Adults stop screaming. Stop freaking people out. Right. And it it seems to be acceptable behavior for adults to scream in situations now. Do you think people are just looking for an excuse to let off some steam? I don't know. I don't know what it is. It's weird and it's and stop it. Yeah. I'm trying to think if I've ever been on a plane where that's happened multiple times and people have screened. I mean, like, that's pretty heavy-duty turbulence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's only happened. I mean, I've been on, like, four flights where it's happened. But it's amazing that adults will scream during turbulence, will scream on roller coasters. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, I guess that's part of the fun, but okay. But the turbulence is a real situation. It's like, all right, the first one, you get a pass. Right. Then, then man up. Then shut up, yeah. Which is the name of one of your shows, actually. Now, do you scream? Because you seem like a very stoic person. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't. I think there's part of me that thinks during the 94 quake, I woke up screaming. <laughs> but you're not I, sure? I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I remember waking up thinking, what the fuck is going on? Mm-hmm. And But I, I almost feel like my scream before that woke me up. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, d- were you here for the recent quakes? Yes. Because there's been a bunch of them. Yeah. How did you react to those? I mean, they were interesting because they weren't much of anything. But 
In the 94, I lived like three miles from the epicenter. Oh, so, wow. So it was... Uh, Scary? It, it, it was terrifying, yeah. Yeah. Did, was your house damaged? Yeah, yeah. We, we had a motorhome, uh, so we lived in that for a little while, which was nice to have a thing that was on shock absorbers and mm-hmm. you could put the kids in it and everything like that. And How many kids do you have? I have four kids. And so are where did you grow up? Um, 10 years in Ohio, and then... Um, my family came out here when I was 10, and I've been in the Valley uh, since, except mm-hmm. for seven years in New York doing 30 Rock. And you're about to go back to New York, right? I am. Are you – you're going back to a place you already have, or you're moving there, or how's this working? I'm moving. I'm doing corporate housing there. Um, I'm going to go on a new show. Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, who did 30 Rock, wrote a new pilot. And uh, they kind of hooked me in. So that's exciting. I'm going to do that. Yeah. Does your whole family go with you? One of my daughters is going with me, mm-hmm. but uh, no. Uh, my wife will say I'll get there a lot, and then she won't. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all my kids are, are adults. I have grandkids now too. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So yeah, I've, I've usually been by myself there, but this time one of my daughters is going. And is she going to work on the show as well? She is. She's going to be the writer's PA. Oh, that's so. exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what's the, sh- what's the new pilot about? If you can say, I don't know if I can say it's, uh, it, it's pretty edgy. I mean, it's Ellie Kemper starring and she plays from the office and, uh, she plays a woman who was kind of a captive in a doomsday cult and she escapes from it. And, uh, now she's kind of living life for the first time in New York city mm-hmm. and it sounds serious and uh but it's one of the funniest scripts i've ever read so so does this okay i'm gonna ask a question which is gonna belie a lack of understanding about how all the tv stuff actually works are you doing doing this in your off time from mini project and you'll go back to mini project i am not going to be on the mini project next season at least when they start and this is um it's a 13 order, the, the Tina Fey thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'll see if uh, I, I, I hope to come back to Mindy after I'm done in New York. So, Are they sad about you leaving? Uh, sad's, I, I guess, a better word than. <laughs> no, I, yeah, Are I, I they think, a word that sounds like sad <clears throat> but has one different letter? <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I think they are sad that I'm leaving. And, and there's part of me that's sad to be leaving too. I really like it there. I love the show. Um, it's just, uh, you know, eight years ago, I, I just got into that Tina Fey world, and it's hard to get out of it. So, what's the Tina Fey world like? Uh, it's pretty great. Uh, she is, I mean, everything you kind of want her to be. Uh, the best writer I've ever been around, and um, just a great person, great human being, and you know. When when she first said I wrote another pilot, we, you know we wrote one. Would you would you look at it? I, I thought I'm not gonna. I I can't go back to New York. I, I and uh, and I read it. And I knew right away. I was like on page three. I'm like, Ugh, I'm gonna go do this. <laughs> so what was it about it? Um, just she just uh, I mean, like she's the funniest person I've ever met. Like I said, the script is so funny. It. It's the funniest pilot I've read since the 30 Rock pilot. Wow. And you said that at first you're like, I, I can't go back to New York. What was it about New York that – or what, what was that decision about? 
about the, feel, the feeling that you didn't want to go back. Um, just being away from family is what that's about. Because I do love New York. Mm. Uh, I think I love it out here a little bit more, though. Yeah, I I lived there for years, um, and I I'm from here originally. I was there for nine years, and then I came back, and I miss it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's easier to live out here. Um, yeah, it it just is. I know the uh, the people who uh, have stayed out there were talking about how this winter broke them. Yeah, <laughs> I was very happy not to be there the last few months. So, um, so okay, so your dad George Burdett, Three's Company, Mash? No, right? no, no. Uh, on the family, uh, Sanford and Son, the Jeffersons. Um, Silver spoons. Silver spoons. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that's in my world. <laughs> um, uh, he started out well. I mean, when we lived in Ohio, when we lived in Cleveland, uh, he was a greeting card writer. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of guys he worked with at American Greetings were coming out here and working on Get Smart and and some variety shows, laughing and things like that. And they kept saying, "You got to come out. You got to try it." And, I mean, it was later in his life, and he just went, all right, I'll, I'll go out and out there. We stayed in Ohio, and I think he came out here for about a year, maybe a little bit longer, and kind of kicked around and tried to get something going. And he finally got something going enough where he said, okay, why don't you all join me out here? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was so mad at first about leaving Ohio. Really? Yeah. How You were 10? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, – very happy. After about a year out here, I'm like, oh, no, this is pretty great out here, too. What was it like at the beginning? It was, you know, I had so many friends in Ohio, and it was just such a um, kind of a different world. I mean, we'd go to the woods every day and and just kick around. It was a little, a little bit like Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer mm-hmm. type, uh, living suburbs near the woods in, uh, of Cleveland. And... Um, I don't know. I, I I love the snow. You know, when you're ten, you love the snow. Right. Um, so I missed all that. But then I started making friends finally out here, and then realized the beach is pretty great, and mm-hmm. the mountains are pretty great, and things like that. What were you like as a kid? What was I like? Um, I was really small. <laughs> I was constantly getting beaten up. <laughs> uh, I guess I try to be funny mm-hmm. to try to not get beaten up. Um, shy. Um, that was it. Kind of a, uh, I guess a smart ass too. So, mm-hmm. do you have siblings? I have a older brother, a younger sister. And is your mom, or was your mom also in TV? Yeah, I mean, she got into really late. She um wrote. Well, she spent when we were in Ohio. Uh, she spent time in a mental institution, and she wound up writing a book about that. What was that book called? The Cracker Factory. And they made a movie, a TV movie out of it. Natalie Wood played her. Wow. Um, which was very weird. Because very, they made that when I was 17, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was very weird because I had a huge crush on the woman playing my mom. That is very weird. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it seems very How wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, she wrote like – she wrote a couple other books after that. And um, – um, then, God, I don't really remember how she got into writing TV, but she got into it pretty late and then wrote a lot of the the old uh, mysteries, the ones that uh, the, 
old people like mm-hmm. to watch, like Madlock and uh, Murder, it? She Wrote? Not Murder, She Wrote. Jake and the Fat Man. Uh-huh. She co-created Diagnosis Murder with Dick Van Dyke. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you worked on Father Dowling Mysteries, is that right? Yeah, and that was one of her. She, I mean, that was my mom. Uh, I was a journalist and, uh, you know, trying to write a script here and there and trying to get some stuff going. And that was her doing her son a solid, mm-hmm. <laughs> throwing me a story. So she was in a mental institution. Yeah. Did she battle mental illness? Yeah. It was more for alcoholism, mm-hmm. which was a thing at the time. Uh, How old was she? When she was in? Boy, she was in her 20s. She, she so had, were you alive yet? Yes. Yeah. She um, she had us young. So, uh, yeah. I guess I, she was probably late 20s, early 30s when she was there. Do you remember her being gone? Yes. Yeah. I remember going to visit her. <laughs> was, what was that like? It was weird. It was... Um, you know, we'd we'd have to go in the lobby. You couldn't go up to the floor that mm-hmm. they were on. Uh, it was in Shaker Heights, Ohio. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, it was – and everybody, you know, family tried to tiptoe around why she was there. And we were raised Catholic and we were going to church every Sunday. And at the end of service, they always say, say prayers for this person, that person. And for more than a year, my grandmother would have them say – a prayer. They say, say a prayer for Joyce Burdett, who's in the hospital with gallbladder problem. <laughs> and this went on week after week, month after month. And other kids were coming up to me and going, you know, my dad says that they can just take out the gallbladder. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever tell them what was really going on? Did, or did you, did you know what was really going on? Uh, you know, I knew some stuff. I mean, she tried to she had a botched uh, suicide attempt. Oh, but, geez. Yeah, but that was... she took like aspirin. She thought she was taking something else. And uh, when yeah, was I... that in the timeline? Boy, I mean, I was probably seven when that happened. No, that that was that was that before that, she was institutionalized. Th- yeah, that was kind of caused her first stay there. Gotcha. Um. So yeah, and I mean. Certainly knew she was she was a heavy drinker. Mm-hmm. Knew that. I mean, there, I remember one time walking in the kitchen and she was throwing all the food down the sink. And I said, well, what are you doing? We're hungry. And she said, you ate dinner. <laughs> like, nobody ate dinner. And she called me a liar and yelled at me. Oh, geez. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And you- so there's stuff like that. And we, my dad put these reflectors in front of the garage so when she drove home drunk, she wouldn't hit the garage. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody in the neighborhood really knew what was going it. on. Yeah. <laughs> um, gosh. So when she yelled at you and called you a, you a liar, like, did you were you like, oh, my mom is drunk, or I mean, because how does a child process that? Um, I don't know if I processed it. I I I knew there was a drinking. She was a drinker. I guess I didn't know it was a problem because I didn't know people had drinking problems mm-hmm. at the time. Um, but I knew that she was a different person when she was drinking. And then it became more and more often she was drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you drink? No. I uh, I used to. And, I mean, I got that gene. <laughs> and it was bad. And I, I, I gave it up when I was 26. That's that's – Young. That's then, young. I, think, I, I already had like you got a handle on it. I had two it. kids and one on the way by that point. Oh, you bird it, start young. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So what was it like before before you gave it up? Oh, it was you know for the longest time I was able to keep it away from family. Mm-hmm. Like I would be drunk at work and drunk all over the place and um everywhere else and I'd try not to bring it home. And if I was drunk out in the world, I'd be like, "Oh, I'll wait a little bit longer." And then Cindy, it's my wife, Cindy will be in bed and she'll never know and everything mm-hmm. like that. And in the last few months, I wasn't hiding it at home anymore. And did you yourself decide it was time? No. Um, came home one night. I, I could barely stand. I rode a motorcycle. I came oh, home geez. on my motorcycle. Uh, so drunk. And my wife said, that's it. I'm not going to watch you die. She scooped up the two kids and left me. Wow. And that was my last drink that night. Did you go to AA? I did for a little bo- little while. Uh, it didn't quite. I guess I was 26. And I liked a lot of what was there. But twice in the first month, I got hit on by women. <laughs> and I thought, I can't. I don't need this. <laughs> so I just thought, I'll do it on my own. But uh, I, I, I think I got enough out of AA to sort of help me figure out the rest on my own. Were you worried about the temptation of being hit on by women or just not? What, what, what was it about that that made you want to get out of that situation? I felt everything in my life was so vulnerable at that point that I right. just wanted to, I'm like, I, I don't need this right now. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that sounds like a, a self-protection. Yeah. Yeah. I, and maybe an overreaction, but uh, yeah. Are you, do you, are you someone who overreacts, do you think? Um. No, I don't. I mean, I probably was somebody. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure in my 20s and maybe into my 30s, I was somebody who, who overreacted to things and I'm kind of mellowed out. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you go to college? You didn't? No, no. Well, you are a ringing endorsement for not going to college then. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, someone like, you know, Adam Carolla, who I sit next to every day, feels like go to trade school or don't even go to college at all or I mean he's very much like I went to to a small liberal arts college and I'm very much in favor of that for me I think it was good but there's a lot of people who feel like that's those days are kind of over you don't really need to I mean depends I mean I um it hasn't been great that my kids saw that I didn't go to college and I've done well Mm -hmm. because they're like well why do we and did they uh, my oldest daughter did and she graduated and, um, um, the next two haven't <laughs> and, uh, the youngest one, the son, uh, was in college, is out now, but is going back. Um, but yeah, I mean, I did go, I did take a few classes at Pierce and things like that. So I, I didn't complete, it was one of those things though too. I was such a horrible student. It was just... I barely graduated from high school. I mean, it's a miracle. I went to Burbank High. Mm-hmm. It was a miracle I graduated. And it was one of those things. I went to a party that night. And it was fantastic. I woke up the next morning. And I thought, what do I do now? And I was just freaked out. <laughs> I was working at a gas station. But I knew that wasn't like any future. I was just pumping gas. That's when gas stations used to actually pump gas there. I miss... I was I don't I never knew those days, but I miss those days. And this is going to make me sound like the laziest human being in the world. But I wish I could just go to a gas station and have someone pump my gas for me. 
I hate having to get out of <laughs> I, This does not paint a good picture of me. That's a just me, everyone. I would love if they still had full, full service stations. I think in New Jersey they do, right? They do, yeah. New Jersey it's and Oregon, It's a far Oregon, way to go for gas, yeah. but well, Oregon's closer. <laughs> well, I remember it's, it was in Burbank and working at this 76 station. And uh, down the, a block away there was another gas station. And they closed down for a couple months and they converted to self-serve. Mm. And we were looking at going, who's going to want to pump their own gas? Right. You know, we, and did not see, I mean, I was 17, 16, 17, did not see the future. They were putting you out of work. I know. It's like I know. John Henry, right? That's the <laughs> yes, reference I'm yes. going for? Yeah. Didn't know which Henry it was. <laughs> um, okay. So what was the first? Well, so you were working as a journalist, you said? Yeah. Where, who were you writing for? Uh, mostly the Daily News uh, in the Valley mm-hmm. and uh, some Los Angeles uh, Herald Examiner and and just did some freelancing here and there. And I I wanted to be a sports writer. That's what I really wanted to do. That was your first dream? That, that was my first dream. And mm-hmm. I sort of did everything but that. Mm-hmm. Um, I did news reporting. I did business reporting, which was a joke because I still don't know anything about business. Um. What is that like? What does that even mean? You're writing about. Um, I really don't. <laughs> this was the problem. I really didn't know. I mean, yeah, you'd write about. Mostly, it was just profiles of, right. of different businesses, local <clears throat> businesses, and things like that. Um, and then I got into entertainment reporting. Was a music critic for a while, and I know you did that. Yes. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> who were you, who? What bands were you into? Um. Boy, I mean, you know, there were in the '80s. There were a lot of great local bands here that you know w- were hitting it pretty good, like X and the Blasters and um, Los Lobos and right. bands like that. Did you uh, do album reviews, or did you do profiles, or did you do all of it? Did all of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What What part did you like the best? <clears throat> um, loved going to shows. I just loved it. I loved. Um. Just having that access. Mm-hmm. I always felt, you know, I was, I was 21 when I started doing that. And so I always felt like I was way too young to be interviewing people <laughs> and really felt kind of I shouldn't be and uh, try to grow facial hair and try to look older. Because I was 21 and I probably looked like I was 16. Right. I always looked younger and everything like that. Um, it's kind of like almost famous. Did you relate to that movie? You know what was yes I did what what I found fascinating was I was such a Cameron Crowe fan Cameron Crowe the music critic fan and it wasn't until years later that I found out how young he was at the point and I always felt what I liked about him was he was a fan of the music mm-hmm. and I was too and I felt that held me back a little bit all the other critics they were all in their thirties forties fifties and they all had become cynical. And they all kind of hated everything they were seeing. And, and I was the guy at the concerts, even though I was reviewing it, up dancing and everything like that. So I kind of felt out of it a lot of the times or, or like I didn't belong and I was kind of faking it. And I quit after I stopped drinking because I couldn't be around. It was a tough world to be in because I was going to clubs all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the club owners just wanted you there and they would – they didn't care whether you're writing good or bad things about the bands. Um, so they would give me alcohol. They'd give me drugs and everything like that as soon as I walked in the door. So it was a fun world. for Right. What drugs were you doing? 
Uh, I mean, it was mostly it was mostly just pot and some coke and you know, depending on the club, <laughs> it was whatever they would give me. I would take anything they would give me, but uh, you know, like I said, this was the eighties. There was a lot of things that were kind of kicking in as just as I was quitting, and I'm mm-hmm. kind of glad I sobered up when I did. Um, was that a hard decision to stop covering music? Yeah, yeah, it was very hard because I really liked that world. I, like I said, I loved the access, and it was amazing because all those people at the record companies who were my best friends, the moment I didn't have that byline anymore, could not get them on the phone, could mm-hmm. not get And it was it was a good eye-opening experience, good learning experience. Um, but yeah, it took, it was a lot of years before I started making some money where I could start going to any concert I wanted to again. I was actually just thinking about that the other day. So I was a journalist for years, worked at magazines, covered music, covered other stuff. And I used to constantly get, well, I don't even, people probably don't even get CDs in the mail anymore. It's all right. electronic, but I was always getting stuff in the mail. I could go to any show I wanted. I was always on the list. I was just, I mean, it's I took it for, thing ever, it right? is, yeah. it is. Although I think I probably <clears throat> at a certain point took it, for granted, well, I would just sort of look around and be like, "Wow, look at these people waiting in line to buy tickets," or you know, this whole thing that I don't have to, to deal with anymore. Um, but now, even though I am, you know, I host this and I'm on the Adam Carolla show, I do not have that life at all anymore. I suspect I could probably throw my weight around a little more and get something or other if I called and said I was calling on behalf of myself from the Adam Carolla show or something, but. Yeah, now I'm back to the you know pedestrian world of buying your own tickets, and it sucks. It does suck. The only thing I like is when I do get a good seat and I enjoy a good concert, and I'm not worried about what am I going to write about afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> it's just pure enjoying the concert, going home, going to sleep, and not thinking about I have to be up at 5 a.m. to go in and write this review. Right. Do you, um, do you still go to shows a lot? I try to go to – well, it's it's easier to go to shows in New York, I feel like, and that's one thing. That, or maybe yeah, it's, maybe it's because my family's thing. out there too. Yeah, and that's <laughs> it too. Yeah, it's easier to get around everything. You're not parking. You're not worried about all that stuff. Um, the bad part about it is, I find in New York, people talk a lot more at shows and in clubs than they do here because it's so hard to get places here. Mm-hmm. Pe- if you're going to a show, you really want to see the band. In New York, I everything's feel like, social there. Yeah. yeah yeah. So what was the first – okay. So you you left the world of drinking, drugs, and music criticism behind. Right. And then you said it was a number of years till you started making money again. But what did you do initially? Like, how did that go? Um, you know, I, I, I still did journalism and it was uh, writing news, things like that. I started re- being a script reader for studios. I got into that, and I was doing it for Disney and TriStar in a few places. Had you tried to stay away from doing stuff in the same field as your dad at all? Or Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, really, I mean, it's the last thing I want to do. And I'm not, I got along great with my dad, but, but there was a thing of like, well, he did it so great that, you know, why should I even try? Um. I knew I could write. I mean, that was the one. The only reason I did graduate from high school was I loaded up on on writing classes at mm-hmm. the end, and that's what I got all my credits in. Um, but yeah, television writing was the first thing from my mind. When I was working at the Daily News, another writer 
uh, wanted to write screenplays. So we started kicking around and writing screenplays together, and they were all pretty bad. Uh, there were these action, <laughs> action buddy, cop buddy things and everything like that. And um, we did that for a bunch of years and just uh, ran up against a lot of uh, closed doors and everything like that. And uh, at at one point, I finally thought, maybe we should try TV. And he never wanted to. I mean, there's a lot of people who say I don't watch TV, but they sort of do. Mm-hmm. He really didn't. So he had no idea. And uh, so we continued to try to write these weird features that nobody <laughs> wanted to read or if they did read they felt sorry for us because <laughs> they were pretty bad and uh while writing while doing the script reading for disney i i got a job at disney studios on uh so wonderful world of disney it was like one of the longest running sunday disney mm-hmm. movie thing of all time i was part of the crew that finally ended it got it canceled <laughs> But uh, there was a, a project there that Jeffrey Katzenberg loved. He had these triplets signed to a uh, uh, contract, and they were cute. And he wanted this thing where on their 16th birthday, they find out that they're witches. And it was a little bit, I guess, like Charmed, uh-huh. but long before Charmed. Was it the Creole triplets? Yes. Oh, my God. What a weird <laughs> – because I was like, how many – female triplets in Hollywood could there be? There's probably other ones. But yeah, I don't know whatever happened to them. I know that I think two of them were in some Parenthood remake. One of them was on Saved by the Bell, possibly. And then one of them I met at South Coast Pazla in Orange County. Really? Yeah, when I was, wow. you know, in my teen magazine reading phase. So I was like, <laughs> oh my God, it's one of the Creoles. Anyway, okay, wow. so go ahead. So, so yeah, and, uh, you know, they had one writer on it and he... he kind of failed to do what Kasselberg wanted and I would write notes because I kind of knew what Kasselberg wanted and they got another writer and she just didn't deliver. And I thought, what am I doing? I, I took the script home one weekend. Instead of giving notes again, I took it home and I rewrote the first 30 pages and I took it into my boss on Monday and she said, you know, you can get fired for doing this. Is that true? I guess. Yeah. I think as a reader, you're not supposed to mm-hmm. do that. And, uh, um, I said, would you just read it? And so she did. And I mean, to her credit, she passed it up to Katzenberg and he said, yeah, hire him. And so that was the first time I got paid to, uh, for script writing. And I did that for a little bit. I, I continued to read scripts, but every once in a while I got a rewrite. Nothing ever got produced. That which project just died. Never, yeah. What Never happened had. to them? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, that that parent trap. I remember they did like couple parent trap things. That but wasn't was, it just two of them? That was. Nah, I think or it was, was it all three? three. Okay. Yeah, which was weird too because I don't remember exactly what the whole parent trap thing was with them because they didn't. They weren't identical triplets. Oh, they weren't. I don't think so. I think they all looked. I mean, they all looked pretty close. Right. And, my me- okay, you know the Olsen twins are supposedly not identical. Yeah, I don't buy it. Yeah. I'm going to need to see some placentas. Right. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's true, but <laughs> because you do see sisters who look identical who are different ages. So, what's going on? In Parent Trap Three, they uh, they all did portray triplets, but they're also in Parent Trap Four: Honeymoon to Hawaii. Ah, yes, yes. But they all appear to still just be kind of around living living lives trying to be in Hollywood. 
Really? Producing stuff, yeah. Wow. One of of them uh, got married, like, the day that we recognized same-sex marriage and had a kid. I don't know. They all seem to be bouncing around. Oh, good. Did you know who they were before we said this? I feel like you're too young. Not really, but, yeah. Hmm. Some Saved by the Bell fan will know who we're talking about. Cause I think, but I think it was only one of them. It was one of them, and it was only for the last season. She played Tori Black. All right. That, Thank you. That I, <laughs> I just didn't know she was part of a triplet set. Yeah, I know. Imagine that. You know, Parent Trap's a weird movie, too, when you think about it. I mean, it's these girls, identical twins, mm-hmm. that didn't know the other, other existed because the parents split them up when they were small right. and each took one. Those parents are monsters. It's true. <laughs> They're just horrible monsters that, like, and they want to get these monsters back together. You're right. Yeah. Wildly irresponsible <laughs> monsters too. Because if you're going to pull that move, you would think you'd send an email and go, "What? What, what camps your kid going to?" <laughs> <laughs> like, come on. If we're going to pull this fucking diabolical plan, let's let's keep our ducks in a row. You're right. Now, as a young person watching that movie, though. Which one did you think had the better life, Boston or California? Um, or neither. You know what? I never saw the movie when oh, I was you a didn't? young person. I saw the movie when I had kids. Oh, so oh, so you were just thinking, <laughs> yeah. what horrible parents right. they are. Um, how'd you meet your wife? Uh, we both worked at Magic Mountain as ride operators. Wow, which ride did you operate? Or um, did you bounce around? I don't know how that works. Yeah, well, when I met her, I was working. The Log Jammer, which, by the way, is the ride you wanted to work on at that park. It was the best ride to work on. Why? Um, because you had these hill positions that you had to go up and uh, sit in and not do a lot of work. And there were phones up there for emergency, but you just get on the phones and talk to your friends at the other hill positions. <laughs> and uh, it was pretty great. And, um, you know, and you'd watch, you know, the guy in the first hill position would would let you know when the pretty girls were coming by and you'd get all excited and it was fun and were you there to like make sure that people were seated in their log make sure yeah that and if there was i mean i guess a couple times there were emergencies and also i mean you know we're we're 18 years old we're kind of baked and uh <laughs> getting minimum wage or whatever so when there was an emergency it was like well, why is this happening <laughs> Uh, like one yeah, time, like just the person someone would want emergency <laughs> on the log jammer. I mean, what was great in the hill positions too is you had a great view of the fireworks show every night because uh, they were shot off right above. And I remember one night up there, uh, saw one of the I don't know skyrock, whatever it's called, take off, go up in the air, and come back down oh, on the wow. hillside right by the log right, and then explode. And I got on the phone. I go, oh, you should have seen this. The thing exploded right here. And people started going by in the log going, the hill's on fire. <laughs> and I'm like, hold on. What? What are you saying? And like, I looked over. The entire hillside was on fire. Oh, my God. So I, I called down to the station. And I'm like, we have an emergency up here. The hill's on fire. <laughs> and the doofus working the station panicked, pushed the emergency stop, which – he should have just stopped sending out logs. Yeah. But what it did was I could not undo the emergency stop and logs started backing up in my area towards the flames. <laughs> and people were trying to get out of the logs. I'm like, ah, oh, you got to remain seated. <laughs> like, it's just, like I said, 18-year-old bait guys making minimum wage, not knowing what they're doing. 
Uh, finally, I just kind of overrode the system. I had uh, super mental strength at that moment <laughs> and figured out how to do things. And, and the logs moved yeah. on their own again. <laughs> wow. So, and, and what was your wife doing there? Uh, she was working a ride called the Galaxy, which was this huge kind of Ferris wheel type thing with cages and everything like that and a sailboat ride. And uh, I saw her. I had heard about her before, but I didn't know who she was. From the other baked guys at other From the other baked guys would talk about her. And uh, then I met her one night in the employee cafeteria, not knowing that was her they were talking about, and uh, really liked her and then found out she was going out with my supervisor. Oh. Uh, And still, you know, we went out anyway, so. And that was actually, yeah, when I met her, I was working on a ride called the Jolly Monster, which wasn't a great ride to work on. Mm Mm-hmm. And because I went out with my supervisor's girlfriend, he got me transferred to the log jammer. Oh. So it was great. So I got the best ride and I got the girl in the end. And was he trying to punish you or was he just getting you away from him? Uh, he, yeah, he just didn't want me around. He was mad. But, so. but you got like fired up. I got fired up. It was great. So did, was it love right away? Because uh, I mean you were what, 18? 18. It was uh, – I mean, close, yeah, I would think. I mean, it was more feeling for -hmm. somebody than I had ever had before. I don't know if that was love then, but it was like, oh, this is is something special here. Had you been in relationships much before? Yeah, and they never lasted long. Mm -hmm. And then this one um, was going great. And, uh, I mean, it was going on for months. And then she got pregnant, and then we thought, well, what do we do? And it's like, well, let's get married and see how it works out. <laughs> and we did. We were 19, and we got married, and uh, it was funny. Um, when we celebrated our 25th anniversary, uh, we both admitted, like, if we knew at the time that 25 years later we'd still be married, we would have been freaked out. <laughs> but at that point, we weren't. It was just like, okay, let's see how this works. Mm-hmm. Wow. I think the freak out more happened when you know the baby arrived right. a few months later. Right. What did your family think? Um, you know, they were, when I really look back on it, they were kind of cool with it. More so than if, you know, one of my kids, when they were 19, <laughs> and said, I'm getting married. I'm like, yeah, no, it's never going to happen. <laughs> they didn't. They kind of went, all right. Well, you know, my dad's like, you knocked her up. Yeah, that's what you're going to do. <laughs> I mean, I guess given that a Catholic family, like you were doing the right thing yeah. by the way you were raised probably. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think they thought I was doing the right thing. And I think they probably were surprised that it lasted too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember her dad you know, after we got married, said, I'll give it, I give it six months. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and you guys got married in Las Vegas, right? I saw that on your Twitter. We did. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. We went there, uh, the wee Kirk of the Heather right off the strip. And, uh, I'm not familiar with this place. <laughs> wow. Um, I mean, I know some of your, your uh, wedding tales or whatever. Oh, yeah. Trust me, it's a lot easier just going to a chapel. <laughs> I wish we had. 
<laughs> Looking back, I do I do wish we had done that. Um, so did you guys move? So so how did like timeline wise how did it go? Did you move in together right away? Were you already living together? We were not living together. Uh, she. It's funny. So we were in Vegas for a few. We we got married and then we spent like three more days there. Uh, 19, I won money. I don't even know how I was at the gambling tables back then, but I won a yeah. lot of money on our honeymoon, which was great. And it wasn't until we got back. I don't know if it occurred like, were we living or whatever? And <laughs> Were you both living at home? Yes. At your respective homes? Yes. And... Um, my parents, while we were in Vegas, got rid of all my old furniture or whatever and bought, like, nice bedroom furniture. Aww. And then so we moved in there and we lived with my parents for uh, about three months. And my brother probably had about ten parties. <laughs> and after one, my wife was like, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm finding an apartment tomorrow. She went out and I think it took about two weeks because – Nobody wanted to rent to two 19-year-olds. Right. Now, was that because that was her personality to not want to be around partying? Or is it because at this point she was pregnant? I think it was more that. Yeah. She was pregnant. She was like, I, I don't want to live in with this. a frat house. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, we uh, we got a place. She grew up in Granada Hills. And so we, well, I guess the apartment was in Northridge, the first one. Then we wound up uh, managing that apartment complex, and it was for the free rent, and it was insane because it was 152 units. Wow. And I don't know how to fix things. I'm so <laughs> bad at it. <laughs> so what would you, you do? Just call someone when someone had a problem? No, no. I tried to, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> to handle things as best as I could. That's and uh, yeah, I was. we were doing that. I was working at Lockheed. Um, doing what? Um Start out in shipping receiving, and then just I worked on the Trident missile program. Adam has such a boner for anything Lockheed related. I'm surprised <laughs> we're not hearing like a screech of tires. And he's like, "Did someone say Lockheed?" <laughs> right, I, Gary? I, I know Adam. I don't think I've ever talked <laughs> oh, to him about Lockheed. You should. <laughs> I mean, if you say that word, you're not going to be talking to him. It's going to be 30 minutes of him talking at you. But you should bring it up. He'll he'll love that. Yeah, we'll do that. Um. You know what else you should do? What should I do? You should consider uh, signing up for Blue Apron to get your weeknight or weekend dinners out of a rut. This is a really cool company. They're a new sponsor on my show, and I'm so excited about them. Um, What they do is they send you a box of ingredients and a recipe, and so you can make a delicious gourmet but not that hard meal at home, and you don't have to go to the store and pay too much for – you don't have to do that thing where you're like, oh, I know that I need this thing. I'll just buy some extras just in case, and I think I need that, and that thing where – you just want to have a simple, healthy, delicious dinner, but it's a humongous hassle. They take the hassle out of it, but you can still cook at home. In fact, I went home the other night. This is a true story. The fact that I'm saying this is a true story <laughs> makes you have to wonder if the other ones I tell are not true. But no, it's true. I went home and I walked in and I was like, it smells delicious in here. And I hear noises coming from the kitchen. What's going on? Usually Daniel and I just put things in the microwave. But he had gotten into one of the Blue Apron boxes and was making tilapia. And it was delicious. And it was easy because all the ingredients perfectly measured out were right there. And it's, um, let me use a technical term, it's kind of fancy stuff as well. 
fancy spices and whatnot. Uh, so you can definitely impress someone with one of these meals. Just impress yourself. Impress your own taste buds. And at under 10 bucks a meal, including shipping, it's more affordable than takeout. Um, some things you could make, fennel rubbed pork tenderloin, short rib burgers on pretzel buns, ginger soy glazed salmon. I'm pretty in love with these pretzel buns. Uh, visit blueapron.com to see what's on the menu this week. And listeners to my show get their first two meals free. Just go to blueapron.com forward slash Allison. That's blueapron.com forward slash Allison. Cook incredible meals at home with Blue Apron. Go to blueapron.com forward slash Allison. Um, and if you guys do this, you should definitely tweet me some photos of what you make. I don't care what it looks like. I'm sure it'll look good. But tweet it anyway because, you know, I love seeing your photos and stuff. Okay, so Jack, back to you. Um, let's see. So at this point, okay, so you're working in Lockheed and you are managing an apartment yes. complex. And then what happened? And I took, like, I went to Pierce College and I took a couple classes. I um, took journalism courses and I really liked it. And um, my wife's best friend at the time, who is godmother to her, our first child um, was working at the Daily News as a. They called them copy boys or copy persons at the time. I think they're now editorial assistants or something. Mm-hmm. And it was just basically it's a PA for Gopher for for the newspapers. And uh, she said, "There's there's an opening there. Um, do you want it?" And so I went and I interviewed there. So um, so I was working at Lockheed during the day, 40 hours a week. And I was working at the Daily News about 30 hours a week at night. Wow. And then trying to manage the apartment building as best as I could. And had your first kid come along yet at this point? Yes. Yeah. So we had... What was that like to, to, be, to go from sitting on a hill on a log jammer ride to <laughs> fatherhood so quickly? It's terrifying. I mean, yeah. It's... I mean, it... it Made me grow up really quick, and I am grateful for it because, you know, I mean, I was a drinker, a drugger back then, and everything like that. And I, I sometimes feel that if I hadn't met Cindy, and she hadn't gotten pregnant, and we hadn't done all that, I don't know if I would have lived through my twenties. And it really, I mean, I had enough of a problem even with all that stuff. But always trying to control it. Mm-hmm. And if there was nothing there that if I had no responsibility, I, I think it would have been bad. So, Were you self-destructive or just careless or just loved substances or wanted I, to escape? Or what was it, do you think? I think it was loving substances. I love the way they made me feel. Mm-hmm. Are I, you, I, I love the, like the loss of control and everything like that. Or maybe having an excuse <laughs> for that. Yeah. I know. I, I still I still don't know whether – because I don't do anything anymore uh, either, but I still don't know whether, you know, getting so drunk that I was like, I'm just going to, you know, put my judgment over here and see what happens tonight, whether that was like something external. I mean, obviously, that's ridiculous to think it was something external, but I don't think that that was like my true nature, you know, and right. yet if it's what came out when I would get drunk you have to think maybe it is, or I don't know. I was, I was just reading something that was saying that, you know, people are a collection of different selves, basically, but you kind of identify with one of them, and the other one just gets pushed kind of into the dark parts of you, yeah, um, like your shadow yeah, stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's like if you think of yourself as someone who, 
let's let's say you think of yourself as someone who is selfless and giving. Well, there's a part of you that is selfish. You just don't identify with it. And you probably dislike selfishness in someone else or, you know, so maybe I was someone who thought of myself as like the part I identify with is the one who's like meticulous and controlled and makes the right decisions. So then when I would get really drunk, it's this, you know, crazy self self that comes out. I don't know. Um so okay, so when did you get into Okay, well, so you did the thing with the the Disney stuff, and then how did you get into writing for all the TV shows that we know about? Um, so, yeah, so I was still doing some of the Disney stuff, and I was writing some Disney uh, Channel movies that never got made, whatever, and then still doing the journalism thing, and um, I covered the riots uh, in 92. And um, that was pretty scary. I bet, yeah. Yeah, it was. It was scary. It was sad too. It was sad to see that was happening, but also there were a couple <laughs> like terrifying moments. And uh, like what? There was one time when I was on Jefferson Boulevard, and there was just gunfire everywhere, and I didn't know. I just hit the asphalt, yeah. <laughs> just down there, going, uh, "Okay, I want to. I want to go home. I don't want to do this anymore." And uh, so I was leaving, and I, I driving up Western to go back to the 101, to go back to my safe valley mm-hmm. uh, after that. And um, I was at a stoplight, and that's like three cars back from, from the intersection, and a guy runs by me with a shotgun. Oh, my God. And then another. I'm like, what, what's going on? And a uh, third guy comes up, and he's like, get down. And there were cops. Oh wow! And there were right at right at the intersection. There were four guys in a car, and they were all coming up to surround them. And they called to them and said, "Get out of the car! Get down on the ground!" And there was a few moments of like, "They're not going to get out. This is going to be a shootout." <laughs> and they finally—I mean, it took a couple minutes—and they finally came out, and gave up. Um, what had they done? Do you know? I have no idea. I uh, didn't stay around to find out. Right. Um, but it was one of those things where it's like I got home, um, four kids by this point, and I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, you know. I, I think there was part of me too when the riot started. It's like, oh, this is my chance to cover a war. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was domestically. And, yeah. And then after three days, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. What am I doing? I like every day you just drive into it. The place that everyone else was trying to get away from. Yeah, and uh, and that was coupled with, of all things, an episode of Roseanne, <laughs> um, which I think happened maybe a couple months before that or whatever. And it was uh, Becky, the oldest daughter, and my oldest daughter is Becky, mm-hmm. had gotten into college, um, and Dan and Roseanne said, "We can't afford to send you." And I remember how devastating it was to watch that because I'm like, I'm not making money right now. And I got a Becky who's going to go to college. She's really smart and very ambitious. And uh, what am I going to do? So that was already in my head. Then the riots. I'm like, why am I doing this job? Uh, The next weekend I sat down and I wrote a Seinfeld spec and pounded it out in 48 hours and got it to – Excuse me. A friend who got it to an agent, a good agent. I had like an agent who never got me any jobs. 
And uh, this agent said, I'll rep you. Mm-hmm. And um, she was great. And Did you think of sending it to your dad? No, I didn't. Never. I, I, didn't, I didn't want, want to. I didn't yeah. want to do that. And uh, so I got the agent. And then I got on uh, a show that had a 13 order that never made it on the air. What show was that? It was called Showroom. And it was uh, Glenn uh, Gordon Carone, Karen, um, who had done Moonlighting. And it was the first show after that. And it was about Cadillac salesmen in 1963. And... Uh, Steve Gutenberg and Paul Dooley and a bunch of people. And it, it was a really charming pilot and everything like that. Very funny. Uh, there was also one of the characters in the pilot is pregnant. And there's talk about abortion. And this mm. is 63. Um, and ABC kept saying, get rid of the abortion stuff. Just don't do it. And Glenn was very powerful at the time. He kept saying no. Mm-hmm. And then they – they said no to putting the show on the air. So you think it's because of the abortion stuff? I think so. And what I mean, year was that? Ninety three. Wow. Uh, so I think late late ninety two, maybe ninety three, and uh, you know, and I'd gotten one script out of that, or and uh, then my agent said, "Don't worry, staffing season is going to start soon, or whatever." And uh, I got a job on Mad About You during that staffing season, and. Uh, I mean, it was a great place to start. They were going into their second season, and uh, it's just such a great learning experience. And it was, I think I'm, I'm trying to remember if it was after I got the Mad About You job that I finally showed the Seinfeld spec to my dad. Mm-hmm. It might have been after the showroom job, but it was yeah. It wasn't until I'd gotten work off of that that I showed right. it to him. What he say? He thought it was fantastic. I mean, I, I think he was kind of amazed that I wrote it. Was was it like you always knew that here's this thing you could go to if you want, but you're going to do the journalism thing for a while? Or was it like all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, journalism isn't – this isn't going to – this isn't doing it for me. I should do something else. Oh, I know. I'll write a spec script. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the – all I knew was I, I didn't want to try sitcoms because I thought my dad did it so well. Um. But I also knew that every time I try to even write some of those bad action things or anything else or the – that the stuff I enjoyed doing the most was the comedy. Mm-hmm. So so what came after Mad About You? Um, I did two years on Mad About You. Then I went to Frasier. How was that? Uh, it was great. It was fantastic. I mean that was um, – Such a writer's show. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, and that was – Joined during the third season, and it was it was great because I mean that was a machine that was already in place, and you know I I, I think it contributed well there, whatever. But uh, you know it was one of those things too. Was I loved it there, loved everybody, but every day I'd walk and go like, don't be the person to fuck this up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, this well-oiled machine, <laughs> right? And then what? And, and then. Um, I'm, I'm walking you through all of it. So. Right, right. <laughs> then uh, the guy who had hired me on Mad About You was starting a new show called Inc. And it was uh, Ted Danson, his first show after Cheers, and Mary Steenburgen. And it was about – they were playing reporters. Mm-hmm. And this guy who, who's been so important in my career um, called up and said, would you come and do this show? And I said, Jeffrey, I can't. I'm, I'm on Inc. I mean, I'm, I'm on Frasier. And, you know, 
And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to bother you. And he, and, uh, a week later he's like, I really need you on this show. <laughs> You've got the journalism background, you know, this world or whatever. And I finally thought, I owe this guy. And I, and you know, and who knows, Ted Danson, Mary Steenburgen. And, uh, all right. So I left Frazier to go do that. And my friend Jeffrey, who I owed so much to, was fired after four episodes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, it was weird because Ted and Mary had this schedule where they, they wanted to spend August with their kids. So usually that's when you start production on a comedy. Uh, so we shot four episodes in July and then had August off. And I went with my family on a motorhome trip. And it was, I don't know, somewhere in Montana or something. And I called one of the writers. I go, hey, how's, how's everything going back there? And he's like, haven't you heard Jeffrey's out? <laughs> and I'm like, I got to get back home. <laughs> I, and so um, uh, Diane English, who had created Murphy Brown, took over Inc. Mm-hmm. And, and and all I kept hearing was, this is the best thing in the world for you because uh, they'll pay you off and then you can go back to Frazier because she's going to bring in all her own writers. And um, I met with her. And she wanted to keep me. So mm-hmm. I did not go back to Frasier. I stayed on Inc. And it was it was a show that never clicked. Um, we all tried. And it, it's one of those that that still drives me nuts because – You feel like it sh- – because you feel like it should have clicked? It should have. I don't know. And there were talented people involved. And, I mean, it's, I think it's the only failure, I guess you call it, that Ted Danson's had <laughs> in television. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything else he's done has been golden and – uh, so yeah, it, it, you know, working on Mindy, everyone's while I see Ted dancing on the lot, uh, going by in a golf cart cause he's on CSI now uh-huh. and it would be like, Oh, I feel like I should apologize to him. <laughs> <laughs> you don't really think it was the writers though, do you? I, I, you know, well, there's, those are two great actors. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of, it was. Yeah. I mean, I guess. Yeah. Well, uh, what else could it be? I guess. I don't know. Ted and Mary were great, and I thought something people aren't watching this for some reason. So, I mean, I'll, I'll take the hit. Um, okay, so then after Ink, what happened? Um, then I went to Just Shoot Me. Uh, Steve Levitan, who I worked with on uh, Frasier, created that show, and um, so yeah, went on there for for a couple of years. And that was one of those shows that. How long did that show run? Seven years. That I feel like that show, a show like Caroline in the City, and I don't know the other ones, Unhappily Ever After, if that had many seasons, are one of those ones where you watch it and you're like, oh, no, this is still first run yeah. for, during the years. Like, I couldn't believe – I don't know what I was doing. I, 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 mean, I don't know if I was in – I don't know. I feel like I wasn't paying attention that much to what was happening in television during the Just Shoot Me years. But that one had a long run. Yeah, yeah. It had a, had a pretty good run. Um, yeah, and I did uh, – I get their first season was six episodes, and I joined the second season, the, the first full season. Mm-hmm. Did two seasons there, and then did, what was that like? Um, it was great. It was fantastic. It was so much fun. Uh, it, all the writers were very loud and very funny, and uh, it was like the Frasier room was great writers whatever a very quiet room mm-hmm. and this one was like you had to screen to be heard in the in the just shoot me writers room which do you prefer uh something in the middle i think 
What, what what's the Thirty Rock? What was that room like? Uh, in the middle. Mid- it's mm-hmm. in the middle. It's uh, you know, there there's a lot of chatter in that room or whatever. But it's also you don't have to yell over somebody to be heard. It's, a, it's I guess more respectful. Right. <laughs> so after just shoot me, then what? Then I did a development deal uh, with NBC, and I did two pilots um, in the first year. One based on my life a little bit, about two 19-year-olds who get married. Um, what was that called? It was called Just Married. And did, and did that air? It did not air. Yeah. It, was, it was a weird thing because um, when I pitched it, and, or not when I pitched it, but when we were making it, executives kept saying, oh, this is what we need. We need this uh, for the 830 slot following Friends. And I kept think, looking at my cast who were very young and kept thinking, this will make the Friends cast look very old. Mm-hmm. And I think in the end, that was one of the things that, <laughs> that sort of did it in. Was it any people that I would know? Yeah. Uh, the, the main guy was Chris Evans. Um, I think he was 18 at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Zachary Levi was in it. Oh, wow. And uh, Jeff Stoltz. So... Um, yeah, some really good people in it. Mm-hmm. And who was the the female lead? Leah Moreno, who was so talented. She's really funny. She's great. Um, I know that name. Um, and she wound up doing being in the other show, the other pilot I did. She wasn't in the original pilot, but then got cast in the mm-hmm. series. And uh, what was that one? That was called Dag. Oh, with Dag? Yeah, David with Dag. Yeah, yeah. We know him well. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so you created that show? I created that show. I don't know what I the co- plot I co-created it with a couple other writers. Uh, it was – he played a Secret Service agent who's guarding the president and has one very bad moment where there's uh, an assassination attempt uh, in the pilot. In the comedy pilot, there's mm-hmm. an assassination attempt on the president and he dives away from the bullet. <laughs> um, and so he – uh, is reassigned to guarding the nightmare of the first lady instead of just being fired. And that was Delta Burke. Oh, wow. Um, how did I miss this show? I don't know. <laughs> how, did, how did everybody miss that show? <laughs> did they? Is that what happened? Uh, you know, I mean, the ratings we got, I think somebody said to me, like, we lasted one year. I think somebody said, you know, 12 million people are watching that show every week and the ratings back then were considered bad. <laughs> we got canceled. Now it would be a massive, yeah. massive hit. Um, you know, and, and part – the show we pitched I thought was really funny. And I thought David Allen Greer playing this put-upon Secret Service agent who made one mistake who now has to put up with this horrible first lady – I thought it was a funny idea. Um, but once we cast Delta Burke, NBC said, oh, people like her so much, he can't make her a nightmare. And I, I kept thinking, but people like her when she plays a nightmare. And we just lost that battle. And I think we were all new as creators. And I think a few years later, we would have just said, well, this is a show we're making. And if not, then right. we'll go away. Uh, but then we just took all their notes and they really – Kind Took of the teeth it out today. of it, it yeah, sounds like. Yeah. Um, how did you and David Allen Greer meet up? Um, well, what happened was, uh, like I said, I was on there, had the development deal and I'd already sold the Just Married pilot. 
And I was next door to these other writers uh, who I'd worked with on Mad About You and Just Shoot Me. And uh, we'd all gotten a tape of who was under development deals with NBC. And the only person we thought was funny on the tape was David. And so they knocked on my door one day and said, let's go have a cup of coffee and talk about, try to come up with an idea for David Allen Greer. And if, you know, after five minutes we don't come up with one, then we've had a cup of coffee. I'm like, all right. We went over the commissary. <clears throat> I think it took maybe 15 minutes. We kicked around different professions. And then one of the, the guys, this guy Andy Gordon said, what if he's a Secret Service agent? And I, then I immediately said, and he, he dives away from the bullet. <laughs> and then Eileen Kahn, the third person, said, and he's reassigned to Guardian the First Lady. And we knew it. We knew we had <laughs> a, a show. And we talked a little bit longer about what the other characters could be. And on our way out of the building, we ran into the head of comedy at NBC. And we said, we just came up with an idea. And she goes, I want to hear it. And we said, well, we have to pitch it to the studio first. You have to go through all these. Right. You got to go to the studio, then the network. She said, well, just tell me. And uh, so we gave her the pitch. And she goes, we'll buy that. Wow. And, and you we sold were amazed. in the hallway. <laughs> sold in the hallway. And then, so then we called the studio and we said, we have this idea. And we went to them. We pitched it. And they said, we don't know if the network's going to like it. <laughs> and we're like, we think they might. <laughs> we had to talk to them. <laughs> it was crazy. But, uh, yeah. And they, we let them adjust a couple things in our pitch or whatever. Right. And then we went in and they bought it. And in the way that they're like, we're going to take this <clears throat> character until we change it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So then – and then what happened after DAG? After DAG, um, what did happen? Um I can look at your IMDb. Yeah. Was it New Adventures of Old Christine? No. After – okay. It was uh, – the next show I worked with was I'm With Her, I think. Watching Ellie. Watching Ellie, yes. Oh, my God. Yes. How can I forget that? That was the first time I worked with Julie Louis-Dreyfus. And uh, it was uh, – I like that show. And I, I, I wish people wanted to watch it. Because I thought it was interesting, and it was it was a weird thing. Every episode was in real time, mm-hmm. and I, I it was it was tough to write, but but I liked the challenge. But at the same time, you know, maybe in the end, maybe we didn't need that challenge. Maybe we should have just like let's tell the best stories, whether they're in real time or not. Because it was right, it was her, and it was Steve Carell and uh, Peter Stormare, and really good cast. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, that's, yeah, I feel bad that, that didn't, uh, quite click. She landed on her feet. She's fine. She's, she might be doing okay now. <laughs> so let's jump to 30 Rock. How did you get involved with Tina Fey and with 30 Rock and all that? Um, well, I was, I think by that point I was, um, getting really tired of doing comedies and, I even wrote a drama spec, a one-hour spec. And Which I, show? Uh, it was a pilot. Oh. I wrote a drama pilot. So, um, And I told my agent, I'm like, I, I just want to go out on, on dramas now. And there were – I mean there were a couple comedies on the air. that I, uh, The Office was on the air. And- did you feel like – like, did you feel like you were losing your love of humor or it just felt formulaic or what was it? Yeah. I mean – 
I felt like there weren't a lot of comedies out there that I liked. And it was really when sitcoms were, were on their way down. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I kind of thought in a, if it keeps going this way, and like rest of development had just gone off the air. And I thought, well, if that's not making it, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And he said The Office was on and, and there were probably a couple other sitcoms that I liked, but there weren't really that much. And everything I was interested in on television was a drama. So um, I think that was it. I think it was more what do I want to write mm-hmm. and, and that's why. And um, But I, was, I supervised a sitcom pilot that year. It was called The Weekend. It didn't make it. But there was a lot of downtime on the set. It was single camera. And I was reading a bunch of drama pilots uh, while sitting there. And then the untitled Tina Fey pilot was in the bunch. I'm like, oh, it's a comedy. All right, I'll read this. Had you met her before? No, didn't know her. Um, So I read it and I went, oh, my God, I have to be on this show. And I called my agent and he said, they're doing it in New York. And I went, oh, okay, forget it. And about a week later, I could not get that script out of my head. So I called him up. I said, if... I could ever get on the show, I'd move to New York for it. And what did you now? Did your wife know that you were doing this? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly talked to her before. <laughs> uh, and, and she was excited that I was excited about reading uh, a pilot, and um, I think she was worried too at the time. That's that a I'd good Becoming kind of grumpy or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, so. It took a long time. I think it may have taken a month for him to get me a meeting with Tina. And really? it was one of those things where at one point they're like, can you get to the airport in a few hours and fly to New York? I'm like, yeah, I can. And then they call back later and goes, no, it's not going to happen or whatever. And then finally on a Friday they said, get to the airport in <laughs> four hours now, and was we'll this fly you in. For a staff writing job or was it for like being – uh, the producer, or a, an executive producer, or like what was the position that you would be meeting with her for? Just be a writer on staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so, yeah. So I flew in late Friday night, met with her Saturday. She was still doing SNL at the time. Um, I remember it. And my, my good friend, Julie Louis Dreyfus, was hosting it. <laughs> and uh, um, I went in to meet with Tina. And um, remember Al Gore was supposed to be on that episode of SNL that night. And they weren't quite sure whether he was going to show up or not. He was supposed to be in a couple bits. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, what do you do if he doesn't show up? She goes, eh, we'll figure <laughs> it out. And I thought, oh, I really want to work for this woman. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she was unfazed. And that's – and I felt the meeting went really well. But I also knew that she was – she and Robert Carlock were only really hiring people that they knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I flew back. Can I ask, in a meeting like that, what is the, like, what are you trying to achieve or sort of what's the goal of that meeting? Is it just to see if you're compatible? Are you yes. trying to impress upon her anything? Or It's mostly compatible. I mean, you, you work on a sitcom, you live with that person, mm-hmm. basically. You're in the room with them all the time. So you want to make sure that you're going to get along with that person. Uh, and I think that's what you're best trying to do. Because if you got the meeting, it means they already responded well to your material. Right. Um, and when you, at this point, you know, at that point in your career, when you would go into a meeting, were you, well, yeah, you said that you were like, I want to work for her. 
So you were also kind of sizing her up too, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if it was a bad meeting, I would have flown back to L.A. and gone, oof. Right. You know. Um, But it went well because you guys just got along well. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think Julia said, why don't you hang around and watch the show tonight? And I thought, I'm getting back on that plane because I don't want Tina to think I'm a weirdo. (laughs) She's not going to know I have a relationship with Julia and that, like, why is that guy I interviewed a few hours ago still hanging around the set? (laughs) Smart. Uh, So, yeah. So I just got on a plane and, and... didn't yeah it was it was a weird time because then one of my daughters had surgery a very uh normal she had tubes put in her ears mm-hmm. but she crashed on the table um there was anesthesiologist kind of screwed up oh god and um, did she have a reaction to the anesthesia or it was like he just did too much or yeah i i Still don't quite know the whole thing. I mean, people have said later, you could have had a major lawsuit. And yeah. like, we're not going to sue. She's fine now. But it was – I was in ICU with her for like four days. Oh, my God. And the fourth day, right before, a few hours before she got out and everything was looking good, I got the call that uh, I got the job at 30 Rock. And it was one of those things – was thrilled and then go, wait a minute, I can't, yeah. <laughs> I can't leave my family because stuff like this is going to happen forever. And uh, it was my wife once again, maybe a little too eager to say, why don't you, <laughs> why don't you move 2,500 miles away and, <laughs> and live there for a while? But right. uh, yeah. How old was your daughter when this happened? Uh, she was, when was this? She was 20. And was she in a coma for those four days? She was not in a coma, no. Just in ICU, recovering? Yeah. God. So Okay, so you got the job, went went to New York, and uh, I imagine had an amazing experience on 30 Rock. It was great. It, it, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, it, was, it was so great that, you know, I did three years there, and after the third season – my towards the end of the third season, my wife called to, we need to be married again. And I don't know quite <laughs> really haven't asked her. I'm like, what, what made you say that or mm-hmm. whatever? But, uh, I went, okay, I'll leave the show. I'll come back. And, um, came back and I did, uh, the new adventures of old Christine during the fourth season of 30 rock, but continued to, I wrote a couple episodes. So I always kept my hand in it. Then went back to New York for the fifth season then came back here uh, again to L.A. during the sixth season and thought I was done mm-hmm. with 30 Rock. Um, but a lot of stuff happened and then uh, wound up writing an, the live episode with Tina Fey during the sixth season and then went back for the final year. Mm-hmm. And then came back. Yeah. And then you did the Tim Allen show, which I read was based on your life. Is that right? Because I, no, I, I read mean, the description. I'm like, that doesn't sound like you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, no. What happened was uh, I was working on another pilot and my agents called and the studio called and they said, hey, Tim Allen wants to get back in television and he wants to play a guy trying to re- – a man trying to remain a man mm. in a world surrounded by women. And they're like, that's your life. 
I like it. Are all your? Yeah. Well, you have a son. I do have a son. Um, But still, yeah. Predominantly women. Three three daughters, and yeah, and yes. Um, And I thought, well, I kind of like this other pilot I'm writing. And then everybody was saying, even Tina was saying to me, "You're an idiot if you don't develop for Tim Allen." Because you know he's going to get you on the air and everything like that. And I'm like, all right, and uh, so I wrote a, without me. I, I kept uh, I kept wanting to meet with him, and he didn't want to meet with me. <laughs> and I kept saying, "Am I in a Tim Allen sweepstakes, or am I the one writing the thing?" And they're like, "No, you're the only one. This is the only thing." Of course, everybody was lying all the time. Oh, I found out later there were a bunch of writers. In fact, Kevin Hench, who we all know. Uh, mm-hmm. Was writing one of the <laughs> versions of of it, and um, uh, but I guess I won the sweepstakes because he decided to go with my with my script, and uh, I did that. Um, it was challenging, um, but I liked it. I mean, uh, you know, um, you know, I, I think we made. A good pilot, not not a great pilot, but a, but a decent pilot or mm-hmm. whatever, and um, you know, and Kevin Hench worked on that and hired some of my old friends and everything, and, and it was a good time and everything like that. And then um, they had a huge, huge family tragedy uh, that I left the show for I don't know a month. Uh, about a month, and then the studio said, you have to go back to work. You have to run the show. It can't run by, you know, the way it's being run, it can't be run that way. So I mm-hmm. went back and tried, and I thought, what am I doing? I, I I I can't be funny. I can't do anything. So I just wound up quitting. What happened? Um, One of my grandkids died, drowned. I'm so sorry. Uh, um, so, um, yeah. And I, yeah, 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 it was, it's been about two and a half years, something like that. But, uh, a lot of therapy and, uh, yeah, I, I thought, oh, I'm not going to write comedy anymore. I'm not going to do that. And, uh, um, and it was a little bit of my 30 Rock family that helped put everything back together. First, Alec Baldwin calling and offered me, he was doing this NFL award show. And said, would you come write it? And I thought, I've never written an award show. I don't know how to do it. And he goes, just do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, he had called a couple times, too, before that. Just to see, he was worried because he also doesn't drink anymore. Mm-hmm. And to check on that part. And Oh, uh, to see how, how this was affecting yeah. you're not drinking. Yeah. And um, so I did that. And, you know wrote a monologue and you know, had some good jokes in it. And I thought, all right, maybe I can do this again. And then Tina called and said, you know, we're doing another live show. And will you write it with me? And, and I was back with them. And it was, it was great because um, going back to doing the Tim Allen thing, I couldn't run a show. Mm-hmm. But what I could do was I could be funny sometimes with 30 rock and if i had a couple bad days in a row where i just wanted to be in a dark place they were family they would let me mm-hmm. and it was cool and uh i mean I, I just i owe so much to those people 
So now, you know, two and a half years later, where do you feel like you are in the grief process? Um, I mean, I think about Liam every day. Um, How old was he? Um, two and a half. Mm. Um, he, he's uh, one of trip. Speaking of triplets, you know, he was, uh, my daughter had triplets, and mm. he was one of them. And uh, two boys and a girl, and the girl was also in the pool with him, and also died, but was revived and is fine. And I mean, she's the world to me. And um, you know, as much as I miss Liam, and it, it's crushing or whatever that I have this little miracle, this little monkey girl who just, when I get home, runs up and hangs all over me is, is I mean, kind of saves my life. Mm. Your grandkids live with you? Uh, my daughter who has. Oh. Uh, who has them lives with you? Who has them, yes. Yeah. Is yeah. she the one who's going to New York with you? No. Okay. Um, I want to ask a question. Tell me if you don't want to talk about anything. Okay. Who found them? Um, their mother, my daughter. Um, yeah, it was, um, it was, it was a Sunday and, um, you know, they say like in a, in a plane crash, one thing doesn't go wrong to cause a plane to crash. It has to be a lot of things that go wrong. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it just so many things happened then. And I was I was up in San Francisco. I was at the Outside Lands Music Festival. So I wasn't even home when it happened. And um, uh, my daughter's oldest son has Asperger's. And he was having one of his kind of meltdowns mm-hmm. that he sometimes has. And um, while he was – while she was – Taking care of that, two of the triplets uh, wandered through. And to get outside to the pool, there was a series of locks. And my wife just happened to be doing laundry that day and left one door unlocked. But still, there was doors leading out to the pool that had childproof locks. And they were locked. And Liam, who at two and a half was like a genius, um, figured out how to open them. And I mean, we only found out because a few months after it happened, Isla started talking about the accident and we didn't know she had any memory at all. And Liam saw a toy in the pool and he bent down to try to get it and fell in. And then she couldn't swim. She was afraid of the pool unless I went in the pool with her, went in to try to save him. And so they're in the pool, and at one point, after this, the son with the Asperger settled down, Becky noticed. She goes, oh, I don't hear the kids on the monitor. And she started looking around. And when she couldn't find them downstairs, she ran upstairs. And when she, they weren't upstairs, she, go, she knew exactly what happened. She looked out the window and saw them at the bottom of the pool. Oh, my God. So then she went and... Got yeah. them out. She and, and my wife jumped in the pool. He just grabbed a kid and started doing CPR. And did Isla come back from them or was it? 
Y- yes. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, somebody called 911 right away, but it just took way too long. It took 15 minutes for an ambulance to get there. And there was just no shot. So awful. And I'm thinking, as a grandfather, there's just so many levels of of more. Like you're watching your own daughter grieve and you have your own grief. And I mean, that's just, I just can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. How, how are the other kids doing? They're doing well. I mean, it, it's taken a while, and it's it's still going to take a while. But uh, you know, you, you you don't forget. But you, you, at some point, you got to start moving forward again. Um, you know, it's it's weird with Isla, who will still talk about it every once in a while, and it's it's crazy. I mean, the stories she tells and everything. Does she? She says, "I died." I mean, we never said anything about that in front of her. Yeah, nothing. She talks about looking down from the clouds on everything, and it's just like this is a two and a half year old who has no concept of any of that. Right. And she's so. I mean, I guess it's partially. It's like, all right, maybe there is another place, and maybe there is a thing, mm-hmm. and you kind of. Cling on to that. But yeah, I mean, there was, um, I think it was my wife who months later finally said, you need to go to therapy. And I thought I was holding it together well. And I said, I don't think so. And she goes, everybody thinks you have to. So I, I didn't know. What, <laughs> what do you, what was it do you think that made her and everyone apparently know? Um, I guess I had just kind of withdrawn yeah. from the world more so than I thought I had. Had you been to therapy before? No, no. And I really was not looking forward to it and, uh, it turned out to be a good thing. Do you, what kind of therapy was it? Do you know? I don't know. I talked to some lady <laughs> <laughs> and she tells me things that I, you know, um, I try to make sense of stuff mm-hmm. and uh, she helps me try to make sense of things and tells me other things. Yeah, I shouldn't be trying to make sense of s- certain things and also said that I need to like, get out in the world and and be physical again. I guess I was just, yeah, I was just kind of closed in and sat on a couch and didn't do anything. Were you angry at the world? I was angry at myself. I felt like... I shouldn't have been at a music concert like a jerk, you know. Um, if I was home, I I probably would have been up in my room writing that day because I did have a script due that weekend. And um, I would have heard the splash in the pool. Mm-hmm. So very angry at myself. Still very angry? Yeah. And I know that's not rational and I've been told that. Uh, I can't not think that way. Yeah. So you blame yourself. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's my number one job in the world is to protect everybody around me. 
Yeah, I um, no, not at all trying to compare experiences. Not the same. But um, I lost someone to suicide many, many years ago. And I said, I would sit in therapy, talk, you know, trying to make some sense of it. And I would say if I had this whole thing, it was like, if it didn't have, to, you know, because I felt like, how could I, how did I not know? How could I not have seen the signs? How could I have missed this? And it's like, well, you can't know something if someone isn't letting you in, if they're not showing you. And it's like, well, because I was in love with him. So it's like, if, like, I wasn't enough to keep, there were all these ways in which it was, you know, to me, not about me, but like, I wasn't enough to keep him here. That's awful. And how did I miss it? And so anyway, I mean, I would sit sit there and have a therapist try to explain to me why it wasn't my fault. And I just couldn't, I couldn't get out of that way of thinking. I don't try to think where I am. I mean, now I look back and I see that I was, I was young. He was a lot older and I look at it differently. But for the longest time, there was just no way someone was going to talk me out of that one. I don't even know that I wanted to be talked out of that. It Mm -hmm. was just like, I I do know that I didn't for a long time I didn't really want to I wanted to feel better but I didn't want to get over it because if I got over it that to me was like saying it's okay that this happened and I didn't think it was okay that this happened I still don't think it was okay right, that, that yeah. happened and it's like I don't know I was like no like I I have to sit here and feel this and and be someone who is saying it's not okay. It's not okay that this happened because otherwise the world will will forget him. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, and I also think a little bit that some of that might. I mean, I think people cared about me and wanted to see me become my other self again. Like my sister tells me that she remembers the very first time that I cracked a joke, like months and months and months after that and like for a moment she and I giggled and then I like went back to my grief very Mm -hmm. quickly because I just was like no more no more laughs and fun um and I think a little bit that yeah I I think people genuinely wanted me to see me be you know be who I was before but I also sort of felt I felt at the time like People were almost trying to like rush me through my grief because they didn't know how to deal with me in that state. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, and I suddenly felt like I have more in common with the debt. And this is like a, 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 almost like a morose 20 something thought, but I, I just remembered it. I have more in common with the dead than I do the living right now. Like I feel like I'm in between because I'm <laughs> so broken. Yeah. And it's, it was hard to relate to all these people laughing and talking about their bullshit. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> I, I, I know. It's, you know, after the Liam thing too, like everybody came up to me, I, I can't imagine what you're going through. And I'm glad people can't imagine it. But then I remember getting angrier later when it's like people wanted me to get on. Yeah. With life or go back and run a television show. And I was just like. <laughs> yeah. And then I thought, oh, the problem's mine. This is my problem. I shouldn't be doing it. And it was a, <laughs> it was a therapist who said, no, no, no. You know, less than a month after you buried your grandson, they're asking you to go back to run a show. <laughs> they're the monsters. 
Yeah. It was good for somebody else to tell me that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, 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 I know that, uh, I guess, yeah, people want to rush you because. Because they, they're uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, their intentions are good, but I think they're uncomfortable yeah. and they don't know and yeah. they don't really know what to say to someone right. in that state. Yeah, it doesn't make them bad or wrong or that. It's just, you know, and some people get over grief quickly too. Do you, yeah, or do you think they just push it away? Maybe, maybe. And maybe I can't because I don't drink anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I did say that to my wife at one point. I'm like, when she wanted me to go to therapy, I'm like, you're drinking so much right now. You get to do that. Yeah. I'm oh. like, you need therapy too. Don't act like I'm the only person in this family who's lost it. Yeah. I'm the only one who's not drinking. It, yeah, not drinking does force you to confront feelings that you can watch other people around you try to escape from. Yeah. Because you don't really have a place to put them. Um, okay, let's do just me or everyone, and this will be a radical tone shift. <laughs> Brace yourself, here we go. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me or everyone? So your just me or everyone that you wondered about before oh, yes. was sometimes you get an attack of hiccups and you worry oh. that you'll be the person <laughs> who has them and they never, ever go away that you hear about on the news. Right. Or like in the Guinness Book of World Records, yes. wasn't there somebody somebody who picked up a heifer once and, and started hiccuping <laughs> and so. never stopped? <laughs> I have that thought because it seems like they'll never go away. So yeah, I, don't th- yeah. I don't think that's it, just you. Yeah. Yeah. Hiccups really, I mean, you know. I can be waylaid by a horrible sickness and it doesn't scare me as much as five minutes of hiccups going, this is never, this yeah. is the rest of my life now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Mark Adamic says, just me or everyone, if I lose my phone and it, and it is on vibrate or silent, it becomes a code red situation. Yes, I am hoist on that petard all the time. I pretty much always have my phone on silent and then I'll lose it. And Daniel will say, do you want me to call you? And I'll say, it won't do any good unless we see it light up. <laughs> I don't think I've ever lost my phone. Really? Yeah. I left it in cab once. Did you and get it back? Yes, I did get it back. But um, the cab driver started calling people in my contacts. and He, he must have been like, what a star-studded phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit frightening, some of the names I had in there, um, which now I put codes in instead. Mm-hmm. But um, he, I, his English wasn't great. And he would be yelling at me, yelling at my friends. <laughs> and they didn't know what it was about, but they would n- hear the name Jack. <laughs> like, what's going on? And we wound up putting that in the episode of 30 Rock. Andy R. says, if I'm unsure mail is junk, I barely crack it open. The less I open it, the less I feel fooled by their bullshit envelope. Interesting. Hmm. I don't do that. I should. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I don't. I rarely get to the – my wife always gets to the mail first. So I don't so have don't much have of a mail experience. situation. Yeah, Gary, junk mail? Yeah, I just throw it away. Without opening it or you open it and then throw it out? No, I just throw it away. Really? Sure. You're not worried about potentially throwing out something that actually wasn't junk mail but you thought was? No. You I know, get, I get like time- two pieces of mail a month and I'm always expecting it because it's something I've ordered. Right. No one I, – I didn't – I moved recently. I didn't tell anyone my new address. I don't think my parents know my new address. 
You didn't do the whole mail forwarding thing? I mean, I did, but like I just did it online through the USPS. I didn't like alert anybody in my family. No one sends me shit. Right. Michael Ruiz says, fruit salads are delicious, but the juice at the bottom tastes like poop from a butt. It cracks me up <laughs> that he's indicating where the poop is coming from. Um, you know, I'm okay with the fruit salad juice. Um, I don't mind it. I, I maybe get a little bit of what he's saying. I don't go to the poop, but mm. uh, it can be kind of rank sometimes. All right. B. Slammon says, if you watch a movie with someone who's already seen it, you're the only one who can talk and or ask questions during it. Oh, I don't, I don't, I didn't know about this rule, but I like it. Nobody should talk during anything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Are you the kind of person who like when you're going to watch something turns out all the lights and has a real viewing experience? Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I don't watch much stuff though. either. Mm -hmm. So when I do. Um, there's too many little kids in my house too. Yeah. <laughs> I never, I, my big new year's resolution was I'm going to get caught up on, uh, games of thrones, game of thrones, uh, before it comes back on the air. When I came back on last week and I still haven't watched two episodes of that show. <laughs> Have you watched like the, the red wedding episode? No, I know all about it. You know it. about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, but, but you watch the. You're you're watching this season? No, no, I, I, I'll oh, never. Oh, you won't. You I, catch up. I, in yeah, in twenty years, maybe I'll sit down and finally watch it. I fell off with that show. Oh, Gary's pumping his ears because he hasn't watched yet, but he's going to watch. <laughs> no, I've watched. I just don't want any spoilers. Yeah, but I haven't watched in like two seasons. Oh, <laughs> but I hear about it from Daniel. My memory's so bad that people can give me spoilers, and I'll forget by the time I get around <laughs> to watch. <laughs> Rules for Living says, when eating some foods, such as apples, two fruit JMOs, I have to hold them in my dominant hand or it feels weird. Interesting. Hmm. No, I I think I'm ambidextrous fruit-wise. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Will says, just me or everyone, every time Matt speaks on the show, I have to say helicopter out loud. So Matt is on a Thursday show. I don't know if you've heard these episodes. But he pronounces helicopter, helicopter. Right. <laughs> I think that's good. I, we don't do that. To me, the thing that's the most Matt is boom. Gary? Um, I don't know. I mean, boom. that's pretty good. But <laughs> I'm, I'm, lately, I'm more partial to what up, boss? <laughs> <laughs> I know that I did see butt crack over the top of jeans recently. And I thought, hey, Matt crack, even though it wasn't Matt's crack I was seeing. No, once you've seen Matt Crack, you always see Matt Crack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seared. Uh, Rob to the Mac says, is it just me or do you think that if you are playing on your phone in a public restroom, you should at least turn it silent? Oh, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. There's too much noise in restrooms now. <laughs> right. <laughs> too many. Everything should conversations. be on silent. When people have conversations on the toilet, I mean, come on. Yeah. This is just, we, we've given up as a society. I mean, it's, Yeah. I'm not even really comfortable having a conversation on my phone in public. Yeah. I I feel the same way. Yeah. I feel like I need to let that go, though. Probably. Because I said I'm the same of, way, but I, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's plenty of people Yo, why that- have, Why have a cell phone if you can't get over that? That's true. Go back to the home phone. <laughs> That's often what I do, basically. I go back- If I need to make a call, I'll go back to my landline at home. Um- I don't know. Maybe it's because I – this is probably not why. But I do remember the period of time where people had cell phones 
But it was still like, oh, look at that douche who thinks he's so great talking on his cell phone on the street. And then I heard that, oh, in Europe, everyone has them. And now now everyone here has them. Mm-hmm. But there was a period of time where people did have cell phones, but you still the made... The 90s? But you still made... Is that when people were, would make yeah. fun of people on the street Probably. who talked on them? Yeah, yeah you're, just, you're just being polite. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. People I, I, talk on cell phones fucking everywhere now. I know. But people do talk louder on cell phones than landlines. You they have just to. do, that's and true. I think that's part of it. Maybe that's part of it. It's like you feel like your conversation is not being heard when you're on a landline. A cell phone, you mean? No, that is not being heard if you're on a landline, but that everybody can overhear oh, oh, you. Oh, 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 yes. On on a cell phone. Oh, yes, that's it. I thought you right. I thought uh, you meant feel like the other person can't hear oh, you okay, on a no, cell phone, yeah. which is how I feel on a cell yeah. phone. Which is why, like, I don't really love talking on the phone. But a large part of it is because of that thing where it's like, wait, no, no, you go. No, what? No, you go. (laughs) I'm now repeating myself, but I've talked about that before. But I think back to being a teenager or even older than that and spending like four hours on the phone, like just watching something, talking to someone on a landline. But you could do it because you could hear them. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm just more annoyed by those, by not being able to hear. Maybe. I, you know, did a pilot once and you always have these conference calls with notes Ugh. and I was getting notes from somebody who was on a cell phone and I realized at a point they're at the beach. This executive <laughs> who's giving me notes. <laughs> I'm at work. I, I know I was going to be there all night having to do the rewriting these stupid notes. I could hear surf at the beach. <laughs> I was furious. Yeah. What is your attitude about notes and all that? The whole process. I love notes if they're good. And what percentage of them are depends. I, I felt like this year on Mindy, our executives were so good. I, I, they were so that we hardly got any notes. And when we did get them, I said 90% were really good, which is an incredible number. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, it just depends on the executive and it seems like the executives who don't know what they're doing or know what they're talking about, Unfortunately, give you the most notes. <laughs> like, to, are they overcompensating? Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah. We didn't even talk about how you got on Mindy Project. Oh, uh, <laughs> do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, just because we we went through all the other shows, mm. so I'm just. How did that all happen? Yeah, I mean, um, I got to know Mindy through Twitter. Basically. Really? Yeah, yeah, and started kind of chatting with her sometimes on Twitter, and. Uh, she, and then when she wrote the pilot, uh, she just DM'd me and said, hey, would you come and, and do a day just helping punch it up? So when our, it was a very weird day because uh, it was the Writers Guild Awards that day and I was nominated. So I went to her house for a few hours and helped punch up the script and then had to go. Is that go the first and, time you were meeting her in person? First time. <laughs> and, you know kind of dressed ratty or whatever. And then I had to go in her bathroom and change into a tux. (laughs) (laughs) And and then a a few months later, um, I was back doing 30 Rock, the final season, and she just wrote me and said, would you ever consider coming to do the show? And um, part of me was really looking forward to the break after 30 Rock. Mm -hmm. But also, I really liked the show. I liked Mindy a lot. And I thought, well... I, I should jump at this, uh, even though I felt like I could go a few months without a job and and actually enjoy life or whatever. But uh, 
Yeah, I, I had one request that I wanted to take one of the Thirty Rock writers with me, and NBC. It's for NBC. It's NBC Studios. It's on Fox. Uh, the studio found the money that I could bring this other writer too, because I felt like Tracy Wakefield mm-hmm. felt like she was born to to write that show. And uh, yeah, we wrapped Thirty Rock December twentieth and started Mindy January second. So wow. And now, were you? I know this from your Twitter feed. Were you just staying in her apartment? Tracy's apartment, or were those just joke tweets? Oh, that that was those were jokes. But um, when Tracy first moved out, because she'd been in New Jersey and New York her entire life, uh, when she moved out here for Mindy, she lived with us for a while. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I feel like you're someone who probably never has alone time. Is that right? With all the people around you? Um, yeah. I mean. Except when I live in New York. Yeah. Then it's <laughs> <a lot> alone. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, I – it was so funny because when I, when I moved to New York, a lot of my guy friends were going, oh, man, you're living – you, you get to be a bachelor again. You get to, I'm like, you know, be a bachelor again. <laughs> I'm like, you're living alone. And I thought, oh, well, I will enjoy having alone time. I didn't enjoy it and it took a while to – I really, I went from <laughs> living with my parents to being married when I was nineteen, and always being around a lot of people. And it took some uh, getting used to, yeah, to uh, actually be on my own. And uh, I haven't quite figured out the bachelor life that all my guy friends were envious about. <laughs> <laughs> um, Trish says. To go back to just me, everyone annoyed when cars don't bother to put on blinker signals, blinker or signals, when wanting to switch lanes in traffic. Yes, except when I realize that I'm that person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then Kathy, Gary, do you agree with me that picture of Kathy on Just Me or Everyone looks like Lynette a tiny bit? Yeah, at that size, it does. I don't think it is though. Oh, no, I know it's not Lynette. I'm just pointing out the, the yeah. weird tiny Lynette happening on the Just Mirror Everyone. Okay, Just Mirror Everyone, when I am stopped at a red light with another car and they reverse, it freaks me out. Feels like I'm moving. Oh, yes. I totally have that. <laughs> yeah, that happened to me just the other day. It especially happens when – oh, I, it's still Lynette-esque. It especially happens very close, yeah. when I'm next to a bus and they start to go. Like when you're next to a big thing mm-hmm. and that happens, yeah. All right, that was Just Mirror Everyone. You know what uh, What you need, Jack? What do I need, Allison? You need to remove some facial hair. I, I mean, no I, offense. No, it's, I, it, I know. it works for you, but I'm just saying <laughs> it. You just, I bet sometimes you do. Or body hair or what have you. Or maybe the ladies in your life would like to remove some body hair. Hmm. Don't waste money on expensive laser hair treatment removal appointments or waxing or all that, which is messy and painful. No. You need... Speaking of no, you need the no-no. It's just this portable device. It's effective. It is painless. Um, you glide it. It's about the size of a cell phone. You glide it along your skin. It removes the hair. Uh, and I love no-no because they said to me, it doesn't hurt. You won't feel it. And I thought, no, I feel everything. You don't understand. 
someone whistled 45 feet away. I felt it and it chafed. Um, but, but I got over my fears and I tried it. And they were absolutely right. It's painless and I literally did not even feel it. Um, and it's not messy or anything. It's uh, very, very easy to use and it lights up in a way and lets you know that you're uh, using it right. So no-no works for everyone also. It's uh, all ages, skin type, hair color, men and women. And men are increasingly using the no-no and they're even stealing their the no-no from their girlfriend or wife, which I think is annoying them. So basically, <laughs> just everyone needs to get more no-nos. Your entire purchase is backed by no-nos. Triple guarantee if you're not 100% satisfied, they'll refund the purchase price, refund the shipping, and even pay for you to ship it back to them. You don't risk a penny to try no-no. Call for details. Terms and conditions may apply. And you guys can visit my exclusive site to cash in on this offer. Go to nonobestfriend.com. That's nonobestfriend.com. If you order online, you get a free gift card. Nonobestfriend.com, or you could call 800-508-7715, 800-508-7715. Okay. Thank you so much well, for doing you. the show. This thank was you. really fun. It was yeah. really neat to hear just your whole story. Um, and, uh, yeah. I got, got heavy there for <laughs> I yeah, like the got heavy. Got off of the comedy for it, but yeah. I mean, I like, I like, I like hearing people talk about real stuff, mm-hmm. so I'm um, – Glad. That, do you feel? How are you feeling? Do you feel okay? Have you yeah. talked about it? Everything. It's 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 the first time I've talked about it publicly, really. So yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. I'm honored yeah. that you felt um, comfortable enough to talk about it here. Um, let's see. People can follow you on Twitter at Jack Burdett, B U R D I T T. Correct. Right. Yep. Anything else you want to plug? No, nah, I don't. I'm I'm too lazy to. Okay, everyone, just go to IMDb <laughs> and see all your stuff. Um, we have a ringtone available. Hey, hey, hey! Go fuck yourself. You need this. Think of all the people who call you. This could be the special ring for some of them, or you could wake up to it. It could be your text tone. I don't need to tell you guys how to use a ringtone. Um, and you can get this by searching "Hey, go fuck yourself" on your iPhone in the iTunes Store. We have a special bonus episode available. If you think that you are a fan of this show, we haven't heard the bonus episode, well then, what a treat for you, because there's more of this show. Uh, we recorded the episode live at the LA Podcast Festival with Doug Benson. Do you know him? I don't know him. I'm a fan of his, but I don't know him. He's funny. Doug yeah. Benson, musician Matt Costa, Gary, Matt, Chris, me. Uh, it's $1.99, but as I always say, it's easily like $2.73 worth of show. In the comedy album section of the iTunes store, you can follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. You can follow Gary at G. Patrick Smith. You can follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. And I have been trying to make it so that it's not the same – so that there's not duplicate A-R-I-Y-M-B-F tweets coming from that account and from at Allison Rosen, which is my Twitter account. It's challenging, though. Because I do want the show announcements to be on both counts. But anyway, all I'm saying is, hey, I'm a work in progress. I'm trying. You can email us, A-R-I-Y-M-B-F at adamcrolla.com. Okay. Oh, and if you're going to buy something on Amazon, which we know Gary does because th- those are the only things that he gets or things he ordered. Um, if you're going to buy something on Amazon, click through the banner on my website at allisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra. And it does help out the show because they give us a tiny, tiny portion of, of everything you buy. Um, and it helps us. So thank you. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen show? We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Thank you for choosing the Allison Rosen show.
Thanks for listening to the show, everyone. Just as a reminder, this episode is brought to you by NoNo. To get your NoNo and take advantage of the exclusive offer for my listeners, go to nonobestfriend.com or call 800-508-4815. That's nonobestfriend.com or call 800-508-4815. And just a reminder, this show was sponsored by BlueApron.com. That's BlueApron.com slash Allison. Go to BlueApron.com slash Allison.